Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Good afternoon. Uh, Waiting for two of our speakers. Um, Thanks for joining us. I'm uh, Mike Green. I'm Senior Vice President for Asia and Japan Chair here at CSIS and a professor at Georgetown. Um, We are delighted to have uh, all of you join us in a discussion over the next uh, two hours with four of Japan's uh, rising uh, academic thinkers about foreign policy and international economic affairs. Um, This is the seventh cohort that we've invited to CSIS under a program uh, called Strategic Japan. Um, uh, Eight years ago, uh, we um, discussed with the Kante, the Prime Minister's office, how to expand strategic thinking, dialogue, um, uh, planning between the US and Japan. And one priority that Kante, the Prime Minister's office, was thinking about, which was new for Japan, was the need to go beyond the traditional um, bureaucratic sources of foreign policy formulation in Japan um, and to tap into the growing expertise among Japan's uh, academic experts on issues that affect foreign policy um, and uh, to uh, bring more um, uh, academics into the tent in Japan and to expand the dialogue with the US and also to make sure that um, Japanese scholars who are coming up Uh, and making an impact in Japan are sharing their ideas in the US, getting reactions and responses. And so we've had seven cohorts come. We've had 25 in total scholars um, from Japan. Um, Every uh, year, uh, each of the scholars does an essay uh, with um, history and analytical uh, social science research and then policy recommendations. Um, And we publish them as a collected uh, edited volume. And the theme changes each year. This year, the theme we chose and the academic uh, experts we recruited uh, all center on the question of uh, multilateral institutions uh, in Asia uh, and globally. Um, What is the Japanese thinking about uh, the future of these institutions? What is the uh, thinking about Japan's role? And what can the US and Japan do as allies to uh, strengthen institutions and to make sure that institutions are working for our uh, common uh, values and interests. Um, It's a timely topic, as you'll hear from our speakers, um, because um, Washington is not thinking very much about multilateral institutions right now. Um, It would not be an exaggeration to say we're a little distracted, confused, polarized. Uh, Personally, I have faith, uh, especially when you look at the polls, that the American public uh, over the medium to long term continues to support robust engagement. But the Trump administration pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Our attendance at the recent East Asia Summit was pretty weak in terms of rank. Um, Our um, uh, role in the World Trade Organization has diminished. Uh, We're fighting with the United Nations. Um, We're not stepping up. Um, Japan, on the other hand, is playing quite a significant and important role. Prime Minister Abe uh, pushed for continuation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership in new form. Um, In the G7, which we'll hear about, uh, Prime Minister Abe in many ways is the bridge between President Trump and Europe and Canada. Um, One of the things we'll talk about is, you know, is Japan 
bridging the U.S. and these institutions, or is Japan setting the agenda, um, or is Japan actually um, uh, uh, just responding? I think all of the above is true to some extent, but the bottom line is the U.S. right now is very lucky to have a, a Japanese government that's active in multilateral institutions, and we as um, people interested in this space are lucky to have uh, a rich group of Japanese scholars who are thinking about uh, the future of multilateral institutions of Japan's role and the U.S.-Japan alliance in that context. Um, we're going to go with two panels. Um, the first panel um, I'll, ch I'll, I'll moderate. The second panel, my colleague Matt Goodman, uh, Simon Chair and Senior Vice President here will moderate. Um, Matt's going to go global and deal with papers on the G7, G20, and the United Nations. I'm more modest. I'm going to I'm going to do Asia, uh, and we have two speakers who've written papers um, who we'll hear from. Um, the first is uh, Tomotaka Shoji. Uh, Shoji Sensei is the head of the America, Europe, and Russia division in the Regional Studies Department of the National Institute of Defense Studies. Uh, BA, MA, and PhD in international relations from University of Tokyo. He also studied at Nanyang Technical University in Singapore. Um, he's particularly expert on uh, Indochina and Southeast Asia. His paper focuses largely on ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, its evolution, Japan's strategy, and what the US Japan can do to make ASEAN work better for Southeast Asia and for us. Uh, professor uh, Mie Oba is a professor at Tokyo University of Science, uh, and um, it received her undergraduate degree from International Christian University in Japan and doctoral work at University of Tokyo. Um, she received the 11th Nakasone Yasuhiro Incentive Award. You'll have to tell us what that is maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, she focuses particularly on the international politics in Asia, development of East Asian regionalism, RCEP, TPP. So ASEAN and political institutions and security institutions, uh, TPP, RCEP, economic institutions in the region. And then we'll hear from uh, my colleague, Dr. Amy Seawright, um, who runs our Southeast Asia program and is herself a published scholar um, uh, with a PhD from Stanford, which focused on Japan's role in the WTO and regionalism as well, um, although she's largely focused now on Southeast Asia. And we'll connect those two in her comments. Um, uh, Amy, as you know, was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for South and Southeast Asia uh, in the Pentagon from 2014 to 2016 and uh, uh, taught at uh, George Washington uh, before that. Uh, also served uh, uh, in the USAID and State Department. So um, I'm going to ask each of the um, uh, scholars from Japan to give a couple key points, ask Amy to comment. We'll have a bit of a dialogue, and then we'll open it up for questions. Our program has a break after 45 minutes, but we've made a command decision. We're going to muscle through. It's not that hard. Um, we'll go about an hour and 45 minutes, an hour and 50 minutes, and, and instead of taking a break, we'll end a bit early. And we have coffee back there, and the speakers have agreed to hang around so you can ask individual questions and collect business cards and so forth. So we'll end a bit early, but we won't take a break. Uh, and with that, um, let me first turn to, uh, I believe, Shoji Sensei is first on our, on our uh, dance card. Shoji Sensei. Thank you, Dr. Green. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, first of all, let me thank the, uh, Dr. Green and the uh, Japan Chair members uh, for inviting me to such an exciting program. My name is Tomo Shoji. I'm from the National Institute for Defense Studies. This is the uh, strategic, strategic think tank of the Ministry of Defense of Japan. Uh, it is abbreviated as NITS. And NITS, uh, my expertise is security in Southeast Asia. <coughs> Therefore, um, for this program, my assigned topic 
uh, is to explore how Japan has been active in participating in the uh, uh, regional or security institutions, ASEAN-centered or security institutions in particular. In my research, I uh, explored three cases or three frameworks, uh, which are uh, the ASEAN Regional Forum, the ARF, the East Asia Summit, EAS, and the uh, ASEAN Defense Ministers Meeting Plus, the ADM Plus. So um, in my research, uh, let me mention briefly four key findings. First, uh, in the process of active participation in these security institutions, um, Japan's security concern about China, the China challenge in the maritime domain in particular, has been gradually and steadily apparent and crystallized. In this regard, the, uh, Japan is still active in participating in these institutions, mainly in terms of the addressing the China challenge in cooperation with the ASEAN and major powers, including the United States. The, our second point is that uh, with regard to the uh, U.S. participation in these institutions, actually U.S. presence has, been, has not been consistent. Rather than that, it has been more sporadic. So um, therefore, one of the uh, Japan's uh, major roles in these uh, security institutions uh, has been to supplement U.S. absence. And the third, the, uh, with regard to the FOIP, Free and Open in the Pacific, uh, which is the vision uh, promoted by Japan uh, and also by the United States. With regard to the United States, um, it is uh, more like the uh, sort of uh, the Indochina strategy, which was uh, recently released by the Pentagon. So um, with regard to the FOIP, and Japan uh, is trying to play a bridging role uh, in connect uh, the U.S. strategy uh, about the Indo-Pacific with the uh, sort of ASEAN's uh, view on the Indo-Pacific. Actually, ASEAN uh, has been recently uh, releasing sort of the uh, report or about the, uh, its own view on the Indo-Pacific, which was titled the um, ASEAN Outlook on the Indo-Pacific. It is more sort of uh, economy-oriented economy rather than the uh, security-oriented. So the, uh, uh, Japan uh, is pursuing a middle way to connect uh, sort of the uh, security cooperation and economic cooperation. And fourth, uh, regarding the FOIP, related to the third point, uh, one of the uh, uh, most important points for Japan and the United States to garner support from ASEAN to enhance uh, political leverage uh, in these security institutions is to strike an appropriate balance uh, between economy and security. And the, uh, this is more, uh, uh, I think, the uh, uh, sort of the uh, too much security-oriented approach is not welcomed by ASEAN. So that's why the uh, uh, Related to the third point, or uh, I think the uh, Japan uh, should take uh, sort of the uh, uh, good balance between economy and security. In this regard, the uh, uh, Japan should effectively cooperate with the United States uh, in developing infrastructure in Southeast Asia as well as in other regions. 
in this regard, the, uh, like the cooperation between the uh, Japan JICA and the US OPIC uh, is quite significant if it is uh, materialized. And also, the, uh, this kind of cooperation is important uh, in terms of the engaging sort of pro-China uh, countries in Southeast Asia, in the uh, continental Southeast Asia in particular, which are more like the uh, sort of Cambodia, uh, Laos, and Myanmar. I stop here. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Oba-sensei. Thank you. Uh, thank you for Mr. G uh, uh, Professor Green and uh, uh, the, all the um, all the people who arranged for this very uh, excellent uh, program. So I'm so uh, happy to be here to have an opportunity to give the presentation and uh, uh, enjoy in the talk with you. Um, the, my major is uh, regionalism in Asia and the Pacific. And, and I focus on the development of the regionalism in Asia since uh, especially now is the end of the uh, Cold War era. And uh, from my point of view, so Japan uh, or the Japanese political elite has promoted the uh, regionalism so with uh, three main themes. The one is that so Tokyo policy, uh, the Tokyo policy toward regionalism after uh, often reflect a desire for the autonomous, and the autonomous diplomacy. So not just following the United States. The second one is the Japanese political elite, especially after the early 2000, uh, always aware of the rise of China and necessity to cope with a uh, power shift in the East Asia. And the third one is the Japanese political elite sought to maintain a regional order based on the liberal uh, norms and values. So following the Cold War, Cold War end, the uh, value diplomacy or the idea of the uh, arc or the freedom and the prosperity were the typical cases. So now, so Japan still pursued three, uh, these, three, uh, these three themes. So, but the, the big differences so between the past and the present is that it has taken a stronger leadership to promote regionalism than before. So, and the example is a CPP negotiation and RCEP negotiation. In both cases, Japan has taken the very strong leadership to push, to finalize them. And now, so RCEP negotiation is ongoing. So, but Japan and Japanese government are very strongly so attempt to finalize them. That's how finalize it. So, why the Japan began to show its very strong leadership than before. So because, uh, from my point of view, the rule-based international liberal order is in retreat. So Japan now have to so take an, the important role to sustain and foster such an order in this region by using regionalism. So in the past, the regional order is given was given from the Japanese perspectives. But now, Japan have to take an initiative to sustain the uh, regional uh, order. So, now, so in this sense, Japan is a very active player, not a passive and reactive player, so in East Asia and Asia Pacific now. 
So it can be said that China is a challenger to the uh, liberal international order, and it has not only caught up with the economic ascendancy of the U.S., but has also provided its own model for the governance and uh, economic development, to which is accomplished by the uh, state capitalism or Beijing consensus. So, this, so the escalation of the Sino-U.S. confrontation reflects the deep-rooted compet uh, competition between the two different systems, political, economic, and social system and orders. So in these bitter situations, Japan now recognizes its own role as an active player to sustain the regional order. However, Japan's leadership is facing several challenges. The first one is that so Japan's leverage as an economic power is declining so because of the rise of China and the low growth rate of the Japanese economy. The second challenge is that the demands and the interests of the other regional powers, including ASEAN countries, are so diverse. So they do not always uh, share the same regional vision with Japan. For example, India. So in now the Modi uh, administration mentioned the possibility of the withdrawal uh, from the ALSEP, uh, ALSEP uh, negotiation. The Japanese government uh, expects so India as a uh, good partner, but so the, such a India's behavior is opposite uh, direction. And uh, another example is Malaysia. Malaysia is a member of the C CPTPP, but so Malaysia does not uh, uh, ratify it yet. So uh, the, the Mahathir administration uh, uh, and Mahad Dr. Mahathir and himself uh, took and takes a very cautious and uh, reluctant attitude to the CPTPP. It's also the opposite direction of the Japanese expectation. And the third uh, challenge is, is that Japan cannot fully confront China. So because Japan has to always consider the geographical proximity with China and the importance of the uh, uh, China-led or the China-centered uh, uh, production network in this region. Uh, although the Japan's economy size is still very large. The final uh, challenges for Japanese leadership is that U.S. policy direction toward Asia is uncertain. This is very big challenges for Japan because the United States is regarded as the most important partner for Japan to sustain the rule-based liberal order in the region and in the global scene. So the most important issue is that so whether the U.S. join or rejoin the CPTPP. So unfortunately, it depends on the result of the, this year's presidential election. So if the Trump uh, is not re-elected, Japan has a very good opportunity to persuade the U.S. to uh, rejoin and join the CPTPP. I stop it. Thank you very much. Excellent. <laughs> or not a good choice. It depends. <laughs> depends. Uh, that's terrific. Thank you. Amy? Thanks, Mike. Um, 
Very happy to be here talking about Japan's role in, in regional multilateral institutions, which uh, used to take quite a bit of my focus and attention. Um, as you can tell from the presentations, uh, the, the, the scholars here uh, in their papers you know, did a really excellent job looking at Japan's role, its interests, its strategies, its growing activism or leadership in regional architecture, in regional institutions, uh, especially over the last decade. They have a very nuanced understanding of of the dynamics of, of Japan's uh, choices and, and impact. Um, but what I wanted to do was actually sort of take a step back in time. And you know, I think from the vantage point of 2020, it's very easy to look at Japan and the United States and our, you know, the kind of approach that is taken by both countries in trying to sustain a rules-based order through strengthening regional institutions and coordinating very much with each other as well as some other like-minded countries to, to strengthen these institutions. Um, it seems natural, it seems, it seems pretty obvious, but if you go back in time, if we were to step into a time machine and go back 15 years or 30 years, I think it would not seem obvious at all that we would necessarily be where we are today in terms of Japan's emerging leadership in the region and how closely it's tied um, its interests and its approaches to the United States, uh, which you've heard in, in both presentations. Um, I think the choices and the impulses that Japan has had uh, over time and, and continues to have in some ways, as well as the choices made by the United States, um, have led to particular outcomes. Um, but looking back at some earlier examples, I think you, know, you could easily have imagined if you had stepped into that time sh machine uh, a very different outcomes from what we see today. Um, first, just talking about Japan's impulses when it comes to uh, multilateral institutions and regional frameworks. Um, first is a very natural one, that is Japan's economic power, you know, rose in the post, uh, sorry, in the Cold War period. Um, Japan had a natural tendency to look at the fact that it was relatively shut out of a lot of global institutions and regional institutions, and it wanted more voice in them, and it wanted to be able to demonstrate that it was, could play a real contributing role to regional prosperity. Um, and, and so one of the earliest examples we saw, which was a successful case of Japan stepping up in leadership, was when Japan proposed an Asian Development Bank and coordinated with its ally, the United States, in the, in the late 1960s. The U.S. was initially reluctant to approve this idea, but eventually the, the Asian Development Bank was launched. Japan has a, uh, a dominant role in that institution, and uh, you know it's, it's, it's evolved to become an important part of the development uh, architecture over time. Uh, very similar, by the way, to the way that China had wanted to step up with its own idea for a development bank for the Asia Infrastructure and Investment Bank, uh, but the United States and Japan, interestingly, had a very different reaction in that case. Um, but that's one impulse. You know, another impulse uh, that Japan has long had is a, a, a high degree of comfort and support for multilateralism and diplomacy, and especially in the past, really focused, uh, and, is, and even to the present day, very much focused on economic diplomacy, you know, what Japan can bring in terms of development assistance and um, economic uh, engagement with other countries uh, through regional frameworks um, that would contribute to mutual uh, prosperity and stability. Um, but the, the other impulses, I think, are, are somewhat contradictory and have uh, led Japan to have somewhat of a split personality over time. So the, the other impulse, the third impulse, is that, the United, that Japan has often sought to bind the United States more closely to the region. So 
you know, many of Japan's steps in trying to promote, uh, strengthen, create regional institutions have come at times when, the, when Japan has been unsure about U.S. commitment to the region and, uh, and concerns about U.S. unilateralism, and so it has sought to engage the United States as a partner in building some institutions. But the final impulse is that Japan has long, even go, we could even go back to the pre-World War II history here, there's also long been an, uh, an impulse to look at playing a role in really creating Asian frameworks where Japan could play uh, a prominent role and help shape regional dynamics, perhaps without the United States. So when we look back, you know, we, 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 see, the, we see the ADB as a successful case, um, and then we come to the early, the early post-Cold War period in the very late 1980s and, and early 1990s, when the United States, we have to remember, uh, under the first uh, uh, President Bush and in the early Clinton years, there was a lot of talk about the peace dividend from the Cold War. Um, uh, there was not a clear sense in the region that the United States was 100% committed to maintaining its very large global footprint and the very large strategic presence the United States had in Asia. A lot of talk about bringing the troops back, back home or some assets back home. Um, the United States withdrew from Subic Bay and then other bases in the Philippines. And there was a lot of concern uh, uh, about U.S. withdrawal um, uh, of its, of its uh, naval and air force assets from the region and perhaps the United States' intentions to play less of a security role. And on the economic front, Japan was a big trade rival. We had a lot of trade conflicts with Japan. And there was a lot of talk about reciprocity and the need to engage in more bilateral or unilateral uh, tactics to get fair trade with Japan. And Japan was quite worried about this, and that led to Japan's embrace of uh, what would become the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, or APEC, uh, along with Australia. Japan was a key driver, um, and it was very much focused on trying to get the United States engaged in the region. And we also can look at Mahathir's a rival proposal for an East Asian economic grouping, later became known as the East Asian Economic Caucus, uh, in the 1990s, where he explicitly wanted Japan to take the leadership in a regional bloc that would exclude the United States. And Japan uh, politely declined that offer from Mahathir to, to lead that effort, and instead you know, put double down on the APEC idea because it wanted the United States engaged. But then we go a few more years into the future, so we get to the late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, mid-2000s, and what do we see? Well, in the Asian financial crisis, the United States was once again seen as relatively disengaged um, from the region in terms of its response to this devastating financial crisis that hit Thailand, Indonesia, and many other you know, all the other countries in the region. Um, and so Japan's response was to propose an Asian monetary fund, which initially was really about Japan providing leadership to create somewhat of a, a rival institution uh, to, to the International Monetary Fund, which was seen as largely failing these countries under American leadership, we have to point out. Um, that led to a disagreement between the United States and, and Japan, and Japan moved away from that idea, but instead proposed a, a Chiang Mai initiative, which it uh, still largely leads today, um, to try to create supplemental uh, kind of uh, financial safety net for countries in the region, supplemental to the, to the IMF. Um, at the same time, there was a lot of momentum for the ASEAN plus three and the plus three mechanism. So Japan was spending a lot of time talking to South Korea and China about free trade agreements and other kinds of, of initiatives that they would work on together, um, which also included the Chiang Mai initiative, setting that up. Um, and so it looked like Japan was quite interested in engaging in, these, in this very kind of regional approach. 
Um, and then go into the, the years where the DPJ led Japan and Prime Minister Hatoyama proposed the East Asian community in 2008, 2009, uh, the early years of the Obama administration. And it was very vague uh, and unclear that the United States was gonna be offered membership in Hatoyama's vision. It, the emphasis was much more on, again, engaging Asia in an Asia framework. Now that you know Japan moved away from that, and so now has has really embraced the you know under you know, Obama's rebalance when the United States joined the the East Asia Summit and kind of was really back full force at the table for Asian regionalism. It makes sense now that they're they're engaged. You know the United States and Japan are working very closely together in these organizations, coordinating policies, uh, looking to strengthen them and strengthen ASEAN uh, centrality. Um, clearly, the rise of China and the strategic challenge that China poses to both countries has led to a real um, solidification of the coordination and the, the, the commonality in the approach to Asian regionalism. And I think that probably will maintain uh, this kind of close coordination into the future. It's also worth noting that the, the alliance, the security alliance between the United States and, and Japan um, has, is much stronger today after 10 years of various initiatives that have really strengthened it you know, compared to, to a couple of decades ago. So it does seem like now we are sort of locked in an embrace of, of, of trying to mutually uh, sustain uh, a rules-based order. But it, 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 it was not preordained. I think it's, it's very interesting the kind of choices that Japan has made over time. And, and there's been other shifts in Japan's priority and focus from a focus, a clear focus on economic diplomacy to one now that embraces security cooperation and defense diplomacy and a lot of interesting things that that has brought about. Um, an earlier focus on the plus three countries as, as Asian partners, the, the South Korea and China, which was a really, it was a, was a clear focus for Japan a decade or two ago. And now Japan's focused on Australia uh, and India and some of the leading uh, Southeast Asian countries as, as, uh, as close partners. Um, and then with the rise of China, you know, obviously Japan has, has real concerns around the East China Sea and the maritime dis disputes there. It sees the ASEAN-centered frameworks as very useful, not to bring the East, Asia, the East China Sea issues to the table per se, but by focusing on the South China Sea, the other area where there are maritime disputes and uh, it's, an, it's an opportunity in a multilateral form to really emphasize the importance of maintaining uh, access to the global commons and, and resolving disputes uh, through international law and peacefully, um, so it's very advantageous for Japan to be to be using these uh, multilateral institutions to to focus on these these core challenges. I'll stop there, Mike. Thank you, Amy. That that's useful historical context, but also teases out the the underlying variables uh, that um, that shape uh, Japan and U.S. approach towards multilateralism. I'm going to want to come back to them in our discussion before Q and A. Um, I think what you heard from Amy uh, reinforces the idea that uh, Japan's approach to um, multilateral institutions within the Asia context um, is about building institutions, about all the things liberal institutionalists focus on, a more enduring, uh, inclusive, stable order, uh, rules-based order. But clearly, it's also about managing other big powers. Um, and for, for a country, Japan, that has a limited military option, um, that um, multilateral diplomatic tool becomes quite important. And you could say the same of Australia and Canada and other um, U.S. allies, but particularly for Japan, for the reasons Amy explained. Um, and uh, 
I wanted to ask first, um, uh, Shoji Sensei, Noba Sensei, uh, in terms of managing um, powers and neighbors, um, in the in the post Cold War context, and especially 10, 15 years ago, <clears throat> there was a confidence in Japan that uh, RCEP was was not called RCEP then, but but RCEP, the East Asia Summit that these regional institutions could help manage a rising China and pull China in. I remember um, Kusaka-san, who was vice minister of trade, uh, told me at a meeting when I was in the White House that, um, that even though the US wasn't in the ASEAN plus six, it was a cage. And uh, they were building a cage, and they were going to invite China into the cage. And I said, uh, I said, Kusaka-san, who's a good friend, he jokes about this. Kusaka-san, in a year you're going to call me and you're going to say, Green-san, help, we're stuck in a cage with China. Um, and he did. He called me up a year later, goes, Green-san, Kusaka this. Help, I'm stuck in a cage with China. I said, what are you going to do? Uh, he said, we're going to bring in uh, Australia, India, and New Zealand to brought, it, it was originally ASEAN plus three, then it became ASEAN plus six. Um, and similarly, in, in, within ASEAN, Japan's strategy and the U.S. and Australia and others has been was when Amy was on the job to try to use ASEAN to shape Chinese decision making, um, but it didn't really work. When the um, tribunal of the um, uh, the UNCLOS uh, tribunal <coughs> ruled against China, uh, Beijing was able, as Amy knows, to block ASEAN from putting out a statement calling for dialogue because they basically got Cambodia. And, um, and, uh, and so, in a way, China kind of broke ASEAN. And ASEAN consensus, as Amy knows very well, which is required for any movement, can easily be blocked by big power if it decides to. And so I guess my first question for Oba-sensei and Shoji-sensei, I'll come to you in a sec, Amy, is, um, is, is regional multilateralism, whether it's RCEP uh, or ASEAN, is it really still useful for shaping China as an instrument of China policy? Um, or, or has China become too powerful and too skillful at um, defying uh, the cage <laughs> that uh, Kusaka-san wanted to build? Uh, why don't we start with Shoji-sensei on that? Thank you, Dr. Green, uh, for very uh, interesting question. Actually, um, listening to the, uh, uh, Dr. Green's uh, comments, I have thought that the uh, uh, sort of the uh, uh, fundamental structure uh, of the region in terms of the uh, how Japan should engage multilateralism is changing, I think. So first of all, um, as uh, Dr. Green uh, pointed out correctly, uh, Japan tried to image China in a multilateral framework to manage uh, growing China's power. And afterwards, the uh, China is still growing, and the, uh, uh, this power uh, can be more uh, dominant uh, not only over Southeast Asia, but the, over the entire region of Asia. Uh, in this regard, the, uh, uh, Japan's objective uh, is also changing, I think. It is more like the, uh, to support the ASEAN centrality in place of the uh, sort of uh, controlling or managing China. And also, the, uh, uh, Japan's uh, another objective uh, for multilateralism is to sort of uh, raise or issue a uh, uh, counterbalance or counterargument uh, against the uh, uh, sort of the uh, China's uh, rising power or China's sort of the um, initiative like the BRI. So my sense is that the um, actually the 
uh, as strategic environment surrounding Japan uh, has been changing, uh, rapidly changing, mainly stemming from the uh, uh, rise of China. The objectives uh, for Japan to uh, engage multilateralism are also changing. That's my understanding. Uh, thank you for the question. So yes, so from my point of view, so RCEP is yeah uh, still ha having the very important meaning. Uh, important meaning. So to not to put uh, China in the cage, <laughs> and uh, uh, rather so the China and Japan and the other regional countries so have opportunity to set the common rules. So which all member countries have to obey. So this is very important. So because, so now is, uh, the right of China is very obvious. So only the bilateral relationship cannot manage such a big power. So, so, so we, we, we have to set the common rule, common framework. And then so and we, we, we never so think the uh, put the China in the cage. So, in 10 years ago, 10 or 20 years ago, so such a mindset uh, can be realized. So could be realized, but uh, but now, and it is impossible. It seems impossible. But but so on the other hand, the setting a common rule is very important uh, to manage, or the, to coexist the rise, rising China. So, so which is more important? Because one of the challenges with regionalism and regional institutions is the tension between inclusiveness and high quality. It's true for trade agreements. It's true for diplomacy. It's true for anything where you're trying to make rules um, in an institutional setting in a region. So um, what's the importance of including China in, in common rulemaking versus high quality rules for trade, for um, rule of law, good governance, even democracy? Is the balance shifting? Is Japan more willing to compromise to get China in, or is it in a position where it has to emphasize more high-quality mm. rules? It's a very important uh, uh, issue. So I think that this is a very uh, core of the struggle so among uh, powers, uh, including Japan and China. So how to set the mode or the, and the modality of the new institutions like the RCEP. And then, so of course, the Japan and have to prioritize on uh, a high standard, mm -hmm. standard. But so maybe so the Japan cannot uh, throw out of the uh, the inclusiveness. And then so maybe so the Japan have to uh, think, consider both of them, and how to balance is very important. Shoji Sensei, my sense is that the uh, the core. Uh, the core of uh, regarding the, uh, what Japan should protect is the rule-based order. So the, actually, um, whether or not a framework or is inclusive or exclusive uh, doesn't always matter. Actually, uh, with regard to the uh, Japan's approach to the BRI uh, initiated by China, it's like this. Actually, if our China's approach is more inclusive, more transparent. Japan can participate in China's initiative to cooperate with uh, China more effectively. So my sense is that the, uh, 
the important thing is to understand what Japan regards as important, uh, what Japan regards as being protected. So in this tension between inclusive and high quality, power matters. And um, uh, Japan has power, but it doesn't have enough power on its own to uh, demand high quality rules, whether it's RCEP or CPTPP or, or ASEAN-centered uh, diplomacy. And the U.S. is um, in an ambiguous or uncertain position a little bit. Um, and in general, the power structure in Asia is moving uh, to a different direction. When Amy talked about the 1990s, that was a period of, of U.S. unipolarity, at least compared to now. And so it made sense Japan would want to defend itself against U.S. demands using multilateralism. Now it's more ambiguous. It's, it's a mix of unipolarity and multipolarity, but definitely multipolarity is more of a feature. There are other big players in this. It's not just the US and Japan. There's India, as you mentioned. There's Australia, there's Korea. Um, so for Japan to make the right balance between inclusive and high quality, you're gonna need more friends mm -hmm. who share values. Mm. Australia's an easy one. Yeah. Korea should be an easy one. <laughs> India's very complicated. Tell us a little bit, and then I'll turn to Amy, um, how you think about the team mm -hmm. <laughs> beyond the US and Japan that's going to maintain the high quality while being inclusive. Mm -hmm. uh, can Japan work with Korea on this? I I'll, I'll tell you, when we do surveys at CSIS of elites, mm -hmm. we, we have a new one, we just, Amy and I just did, that'll be out soon, but we do them every few years, and we ask four or 500 elites in Asia, <clears throat> what is the future of the region? in terms of norms and rules and institutions and power balance, 10 countries, and the two countries where elites are the most identical in their views are Japan and Korea, <laughs> on what a rules-based order should look like. But, dot, dot, dot. So say a little bit about other players. Australia's the easier one, but India, Korea, maybe Indonesia, that might help in this process. Uh, tough question to answer. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, as I, as you said, so Australia, so should, uh, uh, will be uh, the very um, important partner. So, uh, done before, I think so. So because, so now, so as you said, and I said, so U.S. is very ambiguous. <laughs> but the basically, so U.S. people, U.S. Uh, uh, people in the government, so support the rule-based liberal order. I think so. And then, so in the future, so U.S. of course should be and will be the good partner to sustain the rule-based liberal order in the region. And uh, U.S. might back to the uh, uh, multilateral uh, regional institutions, so in the CPTPP. So, but, so and Australia is very important. And so maybe, so we, uh, uh, Japan and uh, uh, the other countries who share the same regional vision have to um, pull so the many many countries as as much uh, in many countries in the Southeast Asian countries. So not only the Singapore, so but also maybe so Indonesia. Promising. Yes. Promising. So, yes. So Indonesia so uh, does uh, does not like the uh, China dominant world. And then so, and so in and Indonesia so is the uh, 
uh, interested in the joining the CPTPP, and uh, uh, the Indonesia is a, a member of the RCEP, and then so Indonesia will be the very good partner, and uh, Indonesia has a very big big power in the ASEAN groups. So, so but Shoji San, you're an expert on Vietnam. So Vietnam is about as suspicious of China, more suspicious of China than Japan. But it's not as democratic, not even close, as Korea. So how, do you want a group that's suspicious of, of China, or do you want a group that's working with you that's going to advance democratic norms? <clears throat> how do you think about these other neighboring countries? Actually, with regard to uh, Vietnam, Vietnam's relations with Japan and China uh, are really complicated. Actually, uh, sort of, uh, Vietnam's uh, relation with China. Uh, yes, it's true that the uh, two countries share a similar political system. But uh, this uh, does not directly mean that the uh, two countries can cooperate. It depends on the issues. And the, uh, with regard to the uh, uh, relation with Japan, uh, Vietnam uh, can find a lot of fields to cooperate with Japan. So the, um, we uh, should not take uh, idea on approach which is too straightforward. Uh, we should think about the uh, sort of the, uh, first of all, complexities of uh, not only about the uh, relations uh, between countries, but also about the uh, sort of uh, uh, issues or the uh, structures. Uh, in this regard, the, uh, um, uh, Japan uh, has uh, enough uh, space uh, to cooperate with Vietnam, uh, depending on the issues. It also reinforces uh, the approach Japan and some other countries have taken, but especially Japan, to have a variety of forums and institutions. Some may be democracy, some may be economic, some may like China, some may not. Amy, before I go to questions, looking at this, you know, continuing your, your, your story to the future, and looking at this um, patchwork of team multilateralism in Asia that Japan and the U.S. can work with, some democratic, some not, some suspicious of China, some not. W w carry your story forward. Where do you think we uh, see Japan's role in the U.S.-Japan alliance on multilateralism in the next five, ten years? And I know a lot depends on November, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, you know, a lot does depend on, on where the United States is heading with multilateralism, I think, um, because I think if, if we were sort of, um, you know, uh, Back a few years ago, when the several administrations uh, were putting more and more emphasis on on Asia multilateralism, really starting with Clinton and then George W. Bush and then Obama, there was more and more of a sense of 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 a, of a clear uh, understanding that that you know engagement in these institutions and supporting them was really important. Then I think it would be easy to predict that we are on a on a glide path towards you know kind of continuing this partnership and this 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 dual emphasis on ASEAN centered regionalism into the future but if, given the unknowns now uh, with the Trump administration, will there be a second term? How much, you know, the polls, as you alluded to, Mike, show strong support for engagement in Asia and multilateralism and uh, trade liberalization, a whole bunch of things that you would think would be the ingredients for a policy that would, be, would get back to what many of us considered more normal in terms of our engagement in the region, support for multilateral institutions, support for strengthening them. But maybe that won't happen. Maybe there's you know, undercurrents in American politics that are going to continue to sort of uh, drive us off course and make us more internally focused and distracted. And if that happens, you know, if, if you know, President 
Trump is reelected and for seven more years doesn't show up to the East Asia Summit and you know a whole lot of other things um, that give a sense that the United States is disengaged, then it would be really interesting to see what kind of choices Japan and other countries make. Um, I would expect that Japan would stand by doing things like it did in TPP, uh, continuing to engage, get it over the finish line with the hope that it could pull the United States back in. But I think there would be, as we've seen in the past, um, a growing uh, sense of hedging against U.S. leadership and stepping up to continue to create frameworks and support institutions with other countries um, with the recognition that U.S. leadership might not really return in the way that, you know, it has been in the past. So this is where I think, uh, you know, a lot would, uh, it would be very interesting to, to, see, to see where Japan would head. Um, I'll collect a question or two, let the panel uh, respond, and then turn the helm over to, to Matt. So if you have questions for the panel, um, now is your chance. You'll get another shot with Matt's panel and then over coffee. Are there any uh, questions from the audience? Yes, ma'am. We have mics. Piper Campbell. I teach at American University and used to be an American diplomat. Um, listening to the presentation of, of Japan's interests and objectives in this situation, one can't help thinking that um, there is tremendous value to Japan in having a close cooperative relationship with South Korea in the region and in these multilateral organizations, and yet there's some obvious tensions in, in that relationship. So I, I would love to hear from our Japanese interlocutors why you think the Japanese elite are prioritizing other issues instead of getting along with South Korea um, and what you think might be done. We have to answer that one. We'll take one more. Yes, ma'am. Right here. <clears throat> oh, okay. Thank you. Hi, my name is Amanda Wan, and I'm the founder of Asian Initiative Lecture Series at the Institute of Oral Politics, and I'm also a doctoral candidate at the school. Um, so my question for you is that how can the U.S. and Japanese alliance can better counter China's Belt and Road Initiative as well as their soft power at an institutional level? How to counter? <clears throat> Thank you for your questions. With regard to the uh, Japan's relation with South Korea, uh, it is sometimes very sensitive. So it's influenced by uh, more like the uh, domestic politics rather than the uh, sort of uh, objective uh, strategic environment. So that's why the, uh, sometimes uh, we see, uh, we, uh, we witness the sort of um, seemingly um, not really a reasonable uh, sort of phenomenon uh, may happen. However, um, at the strategic level, uh, relation with South Korea uh, are always salient for Japan, I think particularly with regard to the, uh, how to uh, form a cooperative framework across the region. South Korea is uh, a big economic power uh, to have a lot of influence over Southeast Asia. And the South Korea has its own initiative uh, towards Southeast Asia. So in this regard, the, uh, even when Japan uh, strongly uh, promotes uh, cooperation with Southeast Asia, um, sort of how to uh, cooperate with South Korea is uh, also entering uh, sort of the scope of Japan's strategy. And also the, uh, with regard to the uh, US-Japan alliance, the BRI, I think the uh, 
one of the key issues is uh, how much uh, Japan and the United States can cooperate in developing infrastructure in implementing uh, specific projects uh, regarding infrastructure in relevant regions, including Southeast Asia. So the, um, my sense is that the, uh, from a viewpoint of a researcher, Japanese researcher about Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia needs a huge amount of money. And yet China uh, cannot afford to uh, all the uh, sort of finance that Southeast Asia needs. In this regard, the um, Southeast Asia also uh, seeks other sources of support. In this regard, the uh, uh, Japan and the United States uh, have uh, great potential to fully effectively uh, sort of promote uh, infrastructure development in the region. Uh, thank you for the question. So as for the South Korea issue, so in both countries, uh, Japan and South Korea, the um, politicization, so all the history, so has a very big power to shape the attitude toward both uh, each other. So I think, so this is beyond the regional cooperation. And then, so it's a very uh, big obstacle to cooperate with other. But on the other hand, now Japan, China, and South Korea are, uh, are, try are trying to uh, promote the uh, free trade agreement among three countries in the trilateral, in the trilateral cooperation scheme. So this is a very, uh, very interesting. So now, the Japan, China, and uh, South Korea has already the trilateral cooperation scheme. And the, the, uh, the, the secretariat is located in the, uh, Seoul. And then, so um, among three countries, now the more pragmatic cooperation so, uh, is and are the considered to be promoted. It's a very important point. And the, as for the US-Japan alliance, and then so, uh, yes, I uh, totally agree with Shoji-san. So, and then so, now Japan and uh, the uh, United States have to put the substantial substance to the free and open in the Pacific. So by promoting the uh, energy cooperation as well as uh, the uh, infrastructure development. The substance of the free and open in the Pacific is a key point to uh, not manage or the dilute the uh, rise of China's uh, influence in the region. This is my opinion. Um, we're going to turn now to the global, G7, G20, and United Nations, but you had a nice um, display of the challenges, but also the really very proactive thinking going on in Japan about how to um, strengthen institutional structure and how to strengthen the U.S.-Japan alliance at the same time. They are, they are intertwined, as Matt likes to point out, with Article 2 of our security treaty, <coughs> um, and uh, we're grateful that uh, we had this chance. So let's thank this panel, and while we're clapping, invite the next one up. Okay, we're back. 
Good afternoon. My name is Matthew Goodman. As Mike said, I'm Senior Vice President and I hold the Simon Chair in Political Economy here at CSIS. Delighted to uh, join Mike in welcoming you all here um, uh, to this, um, uh, this Strategic Japan uh, panel or event. Um, we're the global panel, so we're going to look at um, Japan as a leader in global institutions. Uh, I think you're going to hear a lot of themes that are echoed across uh, both the regional and global, but I think there are some differences in, in sort of how to think about Japan's role uh, institutionally in the world um, versus in, in the Asia-Pacific region. So uh, I think you'll, you'll get some new, uh, new perspectives here, and certainly we have uh, uh, two terrific um, uh, Japanese scholars to, uh, to help us uh, through that, uh, and then my colleague uh, Stephanie Siegel is a discussant, so let me introduce uh, them briefly. Um, Sara Konoe uh, is, next to Stephanie, is a professor of Kansai University's Faculty of Economics in Japan, uh, currently visiting researcher at Eurolab in Cologne, uh, Germany. She received her PhD from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Um, her research uh, focuses on international political economy, politics of financial regulation, and European integration. Uh, she uh, has been looking in the context of this event at Japan's role in the G7 and the G20, uh, the two big global economic governance uh, organizations of which the United States and Japan are, are members, um, and how Japan can, uh, can play a role as, as a, a leader or at least a mediator uh, within those groups. So delighted to have Konoe Sensei with us. Uh, next to me is Miki Honda. Honda Sensei is professor at Hosei University in Japan. She received her MA and PhD in international relations from Waseda University. Uh, previously, she was associate professor at Waseda and a staff writer for the Japan Times. Her research interests include uh, traditional and non-traditional security studies in East Asia and United Nations studies and her uh, contribution to the, uh, the, com the collection that Mike is assembling is, uh, is on Japan's role in the United Nations, so I think she's going to address that today. And then down at the end of the table is Stephanie Siegel, who is my colleague uh, here at CSAS, senior fellow in the Simon Chair. Uh, previously, uh, Stephanie served as co-director of the East Asia office at the U.S. Department of the Treasury, where she worked for many years. She also uh, was at the International Monetary Fund for five years or so. Uh, she also earned a master's degree uh, from Johns Hopkins SICE. Uh, by the way, we, um, we do put a heavy premium on diversity at CSIS, and I'm somewhat apologetic that three of the four people up here, including myself, uh, went to SICE, but we uh, will try to remedy that. Uh, thank you, Honda Sensei, for giving us uh, some a different perspective. Um, so, um, with that, we're going to ask. Uh, I think we're going to start with Konoi Sensei first. A brief uh, introduction to your uh, views on the G7, G20, and then uh, we'll go from there. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for your kind introduction. Uh, Dr. Goodman, and um, I would like to thank um, the Japan Chair and uh, Dr. Green uh, to uh, invite me for uh, this very important conference, and um, I look forward to our discussions very much. And uh, for Japan's economic diplomacy at G7 and G20, I'd like to draw your attention uh, to th the following three points. The first one uh, is the G7 was an important forum for Japan uh, to ensure the fair treatment um, um, fair treatment in the context of the post-war liberal order. 
um, a rest place for Japan to uh, make its rapid growth compatible one with other uh, G7 partners, other big powers, and uh, being accommodated by them. And secondly, um, I think that Japan provided a useful mediating role as the only non-Western and Asian member of G7 to convey a view of emerging uh, economies and also Asian economies in particular. And third, uh, G7 could be used um, as a stepping stone uh, to find common ground um, and lay out alternative options um, for the discussion of the G20, uh, which includes uh, various rising powers and uh, more diverse views. Um, so this strategy could be used especially for contentious issues such as payment imbalances, macro imbalances, and digital governance. Uh, I think. And uh, to elaborate a little bit uh, these points, um, I would like to briefly look back at uh, Japan's key experiences with G7 in economic governance. Uh, G7 responded to handle with all the common economic and financial challenges um, in the 1970s. Current market turbulences after the collapse of the Bretton Woods system um, and also all the oil crisis were the major agenda to be tackled with. And Japan promoted uh, the, um, the agenda of the development, debt issues, um, and also later on more like human security and global health and various issues and the took leadership and initiative in those issues. Um, and. Um, but um, Japan also struggled with uh, the international pressures uh, that came through G7. Uh, for example, um, the to mitigate trade uh, tensions, uh, trade conflicts, especially with the US and to some extent also with the European partners, uh, Japan had to uh, learn a lot of um, like the accommodative policies. Uh, some policies uh, helped Japan to make its economy more competitive, but um, for example, like too much expansionary macroeconomic policies did not help Japan in a good way. Uh, that uh, when it was made in a very reactive manner to bring some like gifts to the summits. So the, the results are mixed in terms of uh, the benefits for Japanese economy, but Japan uh, absolutely uh, able to uh, strengthen the, its relationship with the US and European partners through G7 engagement, um, despite all the trade conflicts that stemmed from its rising uh, economic growth in the 1970s and 80s. And like in the towards the mid 1990s, but after the 1990s, Japan's um, like um, role declined to some extent because of its economic decline. But now, like after the Abe came to the power, it's more uh, Japan started to take initiative in various issues that, as you could, uh, as the the former panel has um, discussed, and. Um, Japan, uh, Japan's proactive role was very, um, uh, very pro prominent in the Asian financial crisis after the, um, the 1997 Asian financial crisis, as the former panel discussed. Uh, so Japan proposed the Asian Monetary Fund, and also G7 was first very slow to react 
uh, but Japan uh, kept calling for uh, financial support. Then in the end, G7 uh, garnered financial support. And like this example shows uh, some Japan's proactive engagement with um, um, G7 and Asian issue also um, as a, um, to take a role as a mediator between Asian and emerging economies and um, the G7 partners. And uh, the Japan, Japanese government often um, invited Asian uh, leaders uh, in the pre-summit meetings, like for the, of the G7 pre-summit meetings, and also um, it uh, reported uh, to the Asian, uh, it made frequent visits to Asian uh, countries after the summit to report what happened and what discussed. And so uh, that's the Japanese, uh, Japan's role. Uh, um, that we could see from the G7 experiences, but also Japan had, uh, Japan's cases can be a lesson, can provide lessons for how to balance uh, the, um, the rising economic powers between rising economic powers and the, the more uh, the powers of stabi stabilized growth, uh, because the, uh, some like macroeconomic um, um, coordination uh, process that uh, did not really uh, like uh, correct the imbalances, uh, but um, but it was helpful to mitigate the trade conflict. So, but uh, maybe like more technical knowledge or like technical discussion should be combined, like uh, not only in the financial ministry meeting, but also the, uh, to the top level. And um, lastly, I would like to emphasize the, uh, the potential role of G7 to be used as a stepping stone uh, to uh, bring uh, the discussion at the D, uh, D20. Because, um, the, because of the uh, more institutionalized, uh, because G20 has an institutionalized network, um, like especially in the financial stability issue, with in co close coordination with um, like the financial stability board, and also there's some like more expert committees uh, such as um, the banking uh, Basel Committee for Banking Supervision. Uh, it sort of developed uh, the way of um, institutionally dealing with the, uh, the issues. So and also including some like, assessment of the results. Um, but but G20 still um, in, uh, has a lot of tensions. I mean diverse diverse view, more diverse view. Um, so like in the G. Seven, maybe like for the contentious issues uh, in which like even experts cannot agree on, uh, uh, the G7 uh, leaders can try to find some common grounds, like in digital governance, tax issues, and so on. Then uh, try to bring their views and some like various options to the G20 table and start this kind of strategic way of dealing with the, this multilateral institution could be useful. I think this is my view. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Kanoi-sensei, Honda-sensei. Okay, uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Honda from Hosei University, Tokyo. Uh, I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to speak to you all. So today, I'd like to speak in on uh, the Japan's laws and uh, strategic objectives in the United Nations. And the United Nations is the largest uh, the global institutions. Um, uh, Japan gained the UN membership in 1956. Then since then, Japan has made efforts as a stakeholder 
to achieve the UN missions, uh, order the UN missions, maintaining uh, the international peace and security, providing uh, humanitarian assistance, uh, promoting the sustainable development, and protecting, um, upholding international law. So United Nations um, policy has maintained a major component of Japanese uh, diplomacy. And UN is a the platform uh, to enable Japan to contribute more to the international community, even if it has the constitutional limitation. Now, in the process of developing UN diplomacy, Japan experienced two challenges, the major two challenges. The first one happened in uh, the 1990, on the occasion of uh, the Gulf War. Uh, before that, uh, the financial contribution is uh, the safer and most comfortable uh, Japan uh, to show its presence in the international community. But on the occasion of the Gulf War, um, Japan uh, couldn't send uh, the SDF forces uh, to uh, the area uh, because, of course, uh, Japan has uh, the constitutional limitations. Then, instead, provided more than $130 billion to the U.S. multilateral forces. But after the war, nobody uh, um, evaluated Japan's financial contribution. Uh, therefore, uh, this one, uh, this event traumatized the Japanese government. Then, uh, quite quickly, uh, next year, in 1992, Japan enacted uh, the so-called PKLO. And this became the legal basis for dispatching the SDFs to East Timor, Cambodia, uh, South uh, Sudan. Then, uh, SDA has played a major role in nation building. The members uh, made efforts to achieve mutual understanding with the local people and um, carry out their missions without firing a single shot. So Japan's soft power, uh, departing from the emphasis on military might, was uh, very welcomed by the international community. And another challenge uh, for Japan was around 1999 in the field of international cooperation and development. And due to the phenomena of globalization, uh, global issues uh, like uh, the economic disparity, uh, displaced persons, issues and environmental degradation, uh, those issues emerged as common threats to the international community. Now, around that time, Asia experienced a financial crisis uh, in 1997. So those changes uh, in the international situation gave an opportunity for Japan uh, to shift its contribution perfectly to non-military one. Then, uh, Japan made uh, the great contribution to formulate one um, important international norm, that is uh, the human security. Uh, this is the concept, very, um, uh, this is the concept, securing uh, the, all of the people from any threat, any kind of threat. So this became the accepted uh, and became the international norm um, by uh, the adoption of uh, the General Assembly in the United Nations. And this idea perfectly fits uh, the Japanese diplomacy 
and it is uh, and it became uh, the very uh, important component of Japanese diplomacy. And in 1999, Japan established a trust fund for the human security uh, to translate the concept into the UN-initiated project. Then uh, this idea is active in MDGs and SDGs. Okay, uh, now let's, let me talk about the laws and challenges in uh, the major two, two major um, uh, biggest organs in uh, the United Nations. That they are the General Assembly and the Secretary, uh, Security Council. Uh, in a changing international environment, uh, discussions and the General Assembly is very important because General Assembly is the most democratic organs in the UN uh, because the 193 UN members hold uh, the one voting right equally. So in the General Assembly, most uh, general things, uh, I mean the global issues are uh, often discussed. Then, uh, on the occasion of the 74th meeting in uh, last year, Prime Minister Abe addressed uh, the importance of multilateralism and stressed uh, Japan's contribution to the United Nations, especially on global issues. So the crucial role of the General Assembly at the heart of a multilateral approach by all nations uh, to common issues cannot be overemphasized. For example, global issue, among the global issue, um, climate change, uh, this issue is very um, important issue. And at the top of General Assembly's agenda. And in this field, uh, Japan coordinates many kinds of uh, the projects related to global warming. But uh, that in this field, uh, we cannot find the presence uh, from uh, the United States. Yeah. Then instead, uh, China is taking initiative, and also uh, the Russia is taking initiative. So um, this uh, the field is becoming very much political issues today, and Japan uh, tried to invite uh, the U.S. to the discussion about uh, non-traditional issues, especially uh, the global issues. Okay, let me um, move to uh, the laws in Security Council. Unlike the democratic organ, uh, General Assembly, Security Council is very exclusive one, and it's very political arena. So it's, it has a conventional wisdom uh, that the P5 decide, P5 decide, 10 non-permanent members abide by their decisions. So Japan has served as non-permanent members uh, no permanent member on 11 occasions, uh, which is most frequently elected. And despite a limited law, Japan has cooperated with the U.S. in formulating the resolution against uh, DPRK's uh, nuclear development. Uh, during the uh, term of 2016 to 17th, Japan organized urgent meeting 18 times, and Japan and the U.S. cooperated in making a sixth resolution against DPRK. Okay, as a reform of the Security Council, the movement of the reform 
within the UN has been building for years. And it is essential to reform the Security Council to reflect the reality of the international community. This is very important things. And in the past, Japan proposed a G4 plan with India, Germany, um, Brazil. Uh, this, this discussion is uh, today is quiet, but it's um, still active in uh, the Reform Committee and the United <coughs> Nations. So anti-GIFO plan uh, was uh, proposed by uh, United for Consensus Group, uh, including Korea, uh, Italy, Colombia, uh, Pakistan, and other nations. And another uh, plan was proposed by African nations. So uh, the, those uh, the three uh, plans are confronting each other. So gaining, for Japan, uh, gaining a permanent seat in the Security Council is technically difficult uh, because the P5 obtained vetoes. So veto is a very privileged uh, right. Any, of the, any member of the P5 that doesn't want to hand this privilege uh, the rights to other nations. And also there are many, uh, there are many, not many, uh, three enemy clauses uh, still alive in uh, the uh, UNHCR. So uh, it's quite difficult to reform the UN charter. Uh, this is very uh, difficult things for, and a challenge for uh, Japan to obtain the permanent seat in the Security Council. But from the viewpoint of efficiency of the discussion in the Security Council and the size of the Japan's contribution, financial contribution, are ranking the third in the world. Japan needs to continue to argue for Japan's admission uh, to permanent seat in the Security Council. Okay, uh, now uh, Japan has the longest serving Prime Minister there. Uh, if the Prime Minister changes, uh, the J Japan's UN policy won't change. Uh, Japan um, is to be a part of most inclusive decision-making in the multilateral forum. And Japan has focused on the three points. Three points are international peace and security, uh, cooperation for development, and improving the human rights. The UN policy remains one of the major components of Japanese diplomacy because the United Nations has given Japan many chances to contribute more to international community. So this year, the United Nations will celebrate its 75th anniversary of foundation. Then, uh, toward that, uh, that Japan is now preparing for a 2022 election for the Security Council, seeking for a non-permanent uh, member seat. Thank you very much for listening to my presentation. Thank you, Honda Sensei. Uh, more uh, food for thought that I have questions on. Um, Stephanie. Great, thank you. Um, and it's, uh, it's actually great to be here and part of, um, of this very important collection of essays, um, and I would commend them actually to all of you. One of the things that I really appreciated with um, this set of essays, they all start from a historical basis, so um, these issues are clearly very pressing now, but I think they really only make sense when you provide the historical context. 
um, which gives us some lessons for today. Uh, Professor Kanoe's paper in particular, you use the expression of embedded bilateralism. Um, I think there's an aspect of embedded multilateralism um, that explains some of the structural linkages that are in place between Japan and the United States and the other members of these organizations. And those structural linkages um, are sustained even when the current environment is challenging to them. So that historical perspective, I think, is, um, is uh, important to keep in mind as we talk about the, the present. The, um, the evolution of Japan's role, and we heard about it in the last panel, but um, the evolution of Japan's role in the G7, ultimately the G20, and also in the United Nations comes through very much in the papers. Um, it is striking in particular in the G7 and G20 paper um, Japan's role, or maybe it's how Japan is influencing those organizations or how those organizations are influencing Japan in an economic context. And you go through a couple of periods in the 1980s and the 1990s where Japan is being influenced and pressured by these organizations for reform. But if we think about the more recent period, and in particular Japan's role in leading the G20, um, Japan was very much in the role of setting the agenda and in particular on issues that are um, going to be very important going forward. And when we think about some of the challenges that are facing the international system on issues of infrastructure and quality infrastructure, on data free flow with trust, these are issues that Japan was very effective in prioritizing for their G20 year and really leading. So I, I think you see a very clear evolution of Japan's role in the G7 and G20 setting. Similarly, in the United Nations, and as Professor Honda just went through, um, Japan really carved out a role, and you call in your paper the transnational or the non-traditional issues of economic disparity, environmental degradation, infectious disease, diseases. Um, these issues, unfortunately, are as impressive now as they were when Japan really first prioritized them for its engagement in the United Nations. Um, but there again, I think you see Japan playing a leadership role despite a structure that is actually challenging for Japan to play that role in the United Nations. Um, so then we go next to, you, you both actually um, highlight some tensions that are inherent in these multilateral mechanisms. Um, tensions between the individual members and the broader membership of these um, organizations. Um, that point, I'm, I mentioned before the Japan example in the 80s and 90s, the tension where Japan is actually being pressured by these, um, its membership in the G7 in particular. Um, it goes to a point that membership has certain opportunities, provides opportunities to leave, but then subjects the members to certain pressure. Um, so there's a matter of accepting some surrender of, of sovereignty by merit of membership in these organizations. Um, Professor Alanda, in your paper, you actually make it incredibly relevant to the current times um, in speaking to a Washington audience. I think you talk about unless Washington is prepared to occasionally compromise, it's unlikely that other governments will sign on when their help is necessary for U.S. priorities. Um, and so we haven't talked about the WTO in this panel, but I think you know, when we talk about membership in multilateral organizations, the, um, that membership 
can uh, bring pressure on a nation's priorities, but can also subject the member to certain pressures. And that, in a way, is the price of membership in these multilateral organizations. That actually goes back to the, the embedded um, bilateralism or multilateralism and the, and the structural linkages that, that are created. Um, but at a minimum, membership means that you have agreed to discuss and try and find a way forward on some very difficult issues, which brings me to just to the last point of um, lessons for today and the environment that, we, that we're facing. Um, in the G7 paper, um, as we mentioned, you, you said that there are some experiences that Japan has that are relevant to a rising power. Um, you never explicitly say China, but certainly when I read the paper um, and you look at some of the, um, the parallels between the economic structures of Japan or of China, I would wholeheartedly agree that there are some lessons for rising powers. Um, one of the lessons that I took away is that when you're an economy of size, as Japan was and is, um, that there are spillovers then in a global sense, and then you'll have the global community then applying pressure for certain changes. Um, those changes may also require, though, a domestic consensus um, and domestic reforms. Um, and so you kind of need those two pieces, the multilateral pressure maybe for change, but then the domestic changes actually happen to need to have the political buy-in. And uh, the two need to go hand in hand because I think otherwise you end up with an incomplete reform that can maybe not be in the member's best interest. Um, so um, when it comes to other lessons for today, I already mentioned some of the, the transnational or non-traditional issues that were highlighted in Professor Onda's paper. Um, just to say the issues that you identified in a 1990s context are still more relevant now than ever. You highlight um, the Korean Peninsula. You also highlight environment and climate change. Um, and also nuclear weapons. I think um, on all of those, it's an obvious point, but it bears repeating that there is no unilateral or bilateral solution to those issues. Um, the most pressing issues of today require global responses, and that just underscores, I think, the point you were making um, about the necessity of maybe giving up some sovereignty, in a sense, if we're facing global issues. Um, and then finally, implications for the U.S. Um, and again, I'll refer to your paper, Professor Onda. You, um, you talk about two big clusters in the United Nations. You talk about a China cluster and you talk about a European slash Japan cluster. Um, and then you mention that the United States is largely isolated. Um, and so, again, for a U.S. audience, <laughs> reading that and kind of what's the takeaway from that, um, one has to question how can that sort of isolation be in the U.S. best interest. Um, so again, thank you for the papers. It was a pleasure to read them. Great. Terrific. Well, great. Um, again, great um, insights here at the table. And, and when you see the papers, you'll see that there's a lot more interesting um, uh, detail on some of these points uh, that, um, that I think will be, you know, further learnings for, for all of us. Um, let me uh, throw out a couple of questions and then, then bring you in, uh, audience, and we'll try to keep to Mike's um, uh, notion of stopping a little bit early so you've got some time to have some coffee and chat with the, the four uh, professors. Um, so let me ask, in a way picking up on Stephanie's point about domestic buy-in, um, to see, to sort of understand better how sustainable this 
this trend of Japan stepping up and taking more of a leadership role in, in the, these international institutions is. Uh, I mean, certainly it's been over the time I've been following Japan for 30 years, a dramatic, uh, really I'd say dramatic, um, a change of Japan's posture from the days when you know, the Japanese prime minister in pictures in the G7 was kind of standing down at the end a little bit awkwardly and embarrassed. Uh, Hosokawa kind of threw that scarf on and stood near the middle, but, but that was the kind of exception uh, that proved the rule. To today, you know, where, where um, Prime Minister Abe is leading um, on, on initiatives like data free flow with trust and, and uh, quality infrastructure principles and so forth. Really dramatic change. But I guess, you know, the questions about sustainability to, to um, Honda Sensei, um, in your paper, again, I'm sorry that you all don't have the papers, but there are a couple of polls that you cite within Japan that struck me. One was that um, uh, you talk about the constraints of the Constitution, Article 9 um, constraints, uh, and say that when, after the Gulf War, that you're talking about the first Gulf War in the early 1990s, when Japan had this sort of awkward situation, to put it mildly, of, of giving huge amounts of money and getting not only no credit for it, but getting huge uh, criticism, and then uh, deciding to, um, you know, to, to ramp up its PKO, uh, price keep, uh, uh, peacekeeping operations. Um, and you said that after some debate, 70 percent of people, or you cite data, that 70 percent of people supported the notion of of um, Japan stepping out um, with, I mean, the Japan Self-Defense Forces stepping out and doing uh, price-keeping, uh, sorry, I'm an economist, so price-keeping operations sometimes uh, pops in their peacekeeping operations. Um, and uh, um, so 70%, that's quite a lot of support for that. Uh, seems a little contrary to the notion that Japan, the Japanese people are, are a little allergic to the notion of, of, um, of, of pushing out um, and in a way that might be awkward constitutionally. Um, you know, and you, and you have another number saying, you know, today 58% of people, according to one poll, are opposed to an amendment to the Constitution that Abe-san uh, has proposed to add uh, more capability for Japan in this area. And, and I just wonder kind of how much buy-in is there from the Japanese people to those specific issues, but I'd say more generally to Japan playing a more active and proactive role in some of these UN-related uh, efforts. Thank you. Um, in order to, uh, I think in order to take initiative in the multilateral uh, the institution, um, Japan is a uh, like-minded nation. Uh, like uh, the European nations and uh, African nations. And uh, as I told you about uh, the uh, difficulty to gain in uh, the permanent seat in Security Council, uh, the, actually the African nations hold the key, and hold the key. But uh, the, today uh, the African nations are closing to the, uh, the Chinese government. But um, I think uh, the relation between the African nations and uh, China is uh, more uh, the business-like relation. Okay. Uh, but uh, in order to uh, so anyway, in order to take initiative, the multilateral setting, Japan is like-minded a nation, and uh, a need to gain the trust from uh, the uh, the UN members as much as possible. And uh, let me a little bit talk about uh, the um, clusters in the General Assembly. Uh, the general, yes, 
Okay, the, the, uh, the, uh, Dr. Siga pointed out, uh, now in, in the General Assembly, General Assembly can be divided into the two big clusters. Uh, one cluster is formulated by the China, and uh, the, uh, Russia is closing to a China cluster. And African nations are absorbed by the China cluster. And the other big cluster is uh, made by, initiated by European nations. And Japan is one of uh, the clusters, the member. So in this way, uh, and US, US is isolated, not excluded. Uh, uh, from the historical perspective, uh, this tendency hasn't changed. China, uh, United States is isolated herself, itself, from any other cluster. And today, um, close to Israel and some Pacific nation. So in this way, today, uh, Japan's like-minded countries are European nations. So uh, for the time being, uh, this uh, tendency doesn't change. Uh, therefore, uh, uh, the Japan uh, try to um, keep the friends close. Uh, to the Japanese policy, and also try to invite U.S. It's very influential, very important uh, nation alliance uh, partner, and uh, try to invite it uh, to uh, the European crust to. Konoe Sensei, um, let me ask you. The previous panel um, talked a little about this notion of Japan. Um, wanting, or Mike was talking about the tension between uh, Japan's instinct to have more inclusive uh, institutional uh, arrangements where everybody's in, including uh, countries like China, um, but on the other hand, wanting high quality, um, high quality um, rules and norms and standards. Um, and I want to sort of ask a variation on that theme in the global context, because um, it, it seems that there is some uh, sense in, in the global arena that Japan has some preference for somewhat more exclusive groupings. I mean, the G, it, it was, I think, visibly pain, pained at the notion of the Obama administration's uh, decision to make the G20 the kind of global economic steering group. I know the G20 was created before that, but it was really a proactive decision by the Obama administration to say, it's no longer the G7, now it's the G20. And I think Japan was quite uncomfortable about that because you liked the idea of this smaller like-minded group. Um, also, it was alluded to before, I think by Amy Seawright, that, um, that uh, during the Asian financial crisis, Japan proposed an Asian uh, monetary fund. And there have been other times at which Japan has had a preference in a global context for a kind of Asian solution to certain problems, a little more exclusive, as it were, uh, arrangement. Um, is that a fair way to look at it? I mean, is, is, there a, is there any tension there? Is that even the right way to characterize Japan's way of thinking about these organizations, that it's good to get a smaller group or a more like-minded group together um, and not to have necessarily a, a broader, more inclusive uh, grouping? Uh, maybe like sometimes Japan, like in my view, personal view, like Japan may uh, feel Japanese government may feel um, the uncomfortable when like all the tensions or rivalities in Asia may uh, brought in, may have brought in, like if the membership expanded, uh, like uh, so in that sense, uh, like uh, Japan has to negotiate um, 
uh, the, so Japan's hesitance may come from that, and also some like historical issues that Japan have, like the, when the G7 uh, expanded once to G8, uh, the Japan, Japanese government resisted uh, because of the uh, historical territorial issue with uh, Russia. So um, um, that impacts Japan, Japanese government's attitude. But, um, uh, but on the other hand, uh, Japan now realized that um, uh, its exclusive forum is not enough to secure the a liberal order or like their stability in the world economy. They, that's a big realization, I think. So that um, so maybe in the past, uh, Japan was more hesitant about um, bringing things more global, like um, and confronting with um, all the some sensitive issues um, in face, but. Um, um, in uh, such a like public forum, but um, um, but engagement with all the emerging markets at the public forum uh, became has become more important for Japan. So that I think Japan's attitude uh, somewhat uh, can change like in the future more maybe. And but um, um, so in an exclusive group, uh, Japan had some privilege to somewhat like. Um, talk on behalf of the Asian uh, powers. So that privilege uh, like prevented Japan uh, from uh, more uh, showing welcomingness. But um, as, uh, the, um, as she talked about structural linkages, it's very important to have structural linkages between multilateral forums, not only at the summit group, summit level, but also at the ministerial, and also mid-ranking uh, official level, in the technical group, and so on. That kind of structural linkage need to be built, not only among the advanced economies, but also with the emerging economies. So um, then when we look at the, uh, all the trade uh, arrangements, uh, building upon, uh, building on up in Asia, Pacific, and uh, and also in the course of the Indo-Pacific uh, um, region, um, it's more like Japan is, is more trying trying to bring more um, the friends or like more like building more uh, cooperative networks with various partners. So that's uh, my view. Okay. Yes. Uh, let me just ask one more quick question, mm -hmm. and then I'll prepare a couple of questions if you have them um, from the audience, because I'll turn to you next. But just um, for both of you. Um, China didn't come up as much, it was touched on, but not, it didn't come up quite as much in this conversation as you might expect, but let me put it explicitly on the table by saying, what sort of single thing do you worry about most, whether it's in the UN or in the G7, G20 context, about the, the prospect of a United States that is not as committed to its engagement or its role in these institutions uh, and a China that is more assertive in trying to uh, push its interests in these institutions. What's the single thing that you think is most worrisome in your respective areas about that world? Okay, um, uh, so ch changing international um, environment mirrors in uh, the United Nations. So the uh, alignment by the China has started in the United Nations too. The most worrying about uh, the the China, uh, I need to 
follow uh, the international rules, uh, rules, I'm sorry, uh, international rules and norms. And so other members are strongly request China to follow the international norms and the laws. And uh, also, um, I need to share the universal values like democracy, human rights, um, norms, um, free trade system. So um, the other members uh, try to um, ask the China to share uh, those kind of uh, things. Okay. Sensei. So single point of worry, some Just, point. Yeah, yes, um, it's difficult question, but um, um, I think like the. So bilateral, if bilateralism overweigh uh, all the multilateral coordination, that would be very worrisome for the G7 and the G20. Uh, if like China, US trade rivalry, uh, rivalry and also the tensions uh, escalate more, like even more, like also like the, the trade tensions between US and the European countries uh, got escalated more, like then um, also with Japan, like if that, these things are uh, uh, dealt with more like bilaterally, like it could, uh, the multilateral uh, forum could, may lose some like weights uh, in terms of ensuring the, uh, the free trade uh, liberal order. So um, that's the worrisome point. I see, okay. Let me um, ask the audience if they would like to ask um, questions. If you do have a question, wait for the microphone, uh, state your name, and then um, ask a short question if you would, and I'll take a couple of them. This gentleman in the third row here. Um, right there, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Uh, my name is Nawaz Aoyama with the Asahi Shimbun, a Japanese newspaper. Uh, my question concerns the uh, leadership role of the United States in global institu institutions. Uh, although I believe it will continue to be in the interest of the United States to support leadership roles in global institutions like G7 or G20 surrounding trade and security, but it seems that much of the U.S. population has been so disillusioned by the outcome of globalization and they no longer believe uh, it to be the case that it will be uh, beneficial for the United States to support the, the leadership role uh, going forward. Uh, and also, uh, it, it is a true, it, it, it's true that uh, the current uh, global institutions uh, do not necessarily reflect any longer the existing balance of power uh, or the exponentially changing uh, global landscape like the rise of China or uh, the relative decline of Japan. So my question is, what do you think would be, uh, is there anything Japan could realistically do to uh, change or influence this uh, changing narrative, changing case against uh, so-called uh, globalism in the United States. Okay. All right, I'll repeat the question later, but um, this uh, gentleman there with the red tie, come forward. No, no, well, all right, forward if you would. And this, this gentleman there, yeah, with the red tie. Yeah, that's right, could you give him the mic? Thank you. I'm sorry, I'm again, I'm with the same as I Shimbun, minus Sawamura of the Asahi Shimbun. My question is a little bit uh, overlapped question from my colleague that you, uh, I'm quite often asked by my American friend that why Japan is 
escaped from the rise of populism, rise of the violent nationalism, or growing discontent against their globalism, and then, uh, which are happening in many G7 and G20 countries. What do you think about, or I'd like to ask about, is this a, a kind of Japanese exceptionalism, or any sooner or later, Japan would be on the same pages as, as the countries? Okay, so you're not asking me, you're asking our Japanese scholars, right? Why don't the gentleman right next to him, right there, that's right, in the sweater, yep. Hi, my name is PJ Choi. I'm a grad student at Yale School of International Affairs. Uh, I have a question, uh, especially for Honda Sensei, because you mentioned about the DPRK. Um, I think you mentioned about like how Japan has engaged in dealing with DPRKs, like North Korea nuclear issues through like the UN Security Council. Um, but it seems like Prime Minister Abe has interest in like talking to North Korea like directly as well. Um, but as we see, like North Korea and US like, negotiation didn't go really well. What do you think is the possible role of Japanese government in dealing with North Korean issue in the future? Okay, so we have um, how to change the narrative in the U.S. about globalization and in a more positive way. I'm actually going to ask Stephanie that question. Um, and, then, um, and then why has Japan been immune from this sort of populism and will it last, um, the trend around the world? Uh, and uh, DPRK, does Japan have a role in the nuclear negotiations? Maybe, why don't we, uh, actually we'll do it this way, that's fine. Go ahead, you go first. <laughs> Uh, the Japan's laws uh, in uh, tackling uh, the global issues. Uh, this is the this is the uh, strong field for Japan to promote because, as I told, uh, I repeated uh, many times, Japan has a uh, constitutional limit limitation. So uh, NTS issues, non-traditional issues, non-military issues, uh, Japan uh, should work on strongly. So um, in order to promote uh, non-traditional issues at uh, dipl diplomacy, um, in order to advance uh, diplomacy, I need to invite United States. Uh, this is the key, I think. And uh, this is very influential, uh, the, uh, the country, the United States. But United States, as you know, is uh, showing the appetite for unilateralism. So uh, somehow I need to uh, pull uh, the United States back and work on together. So uh, as I told you, uh, the climate, uh, global change, uh, warming, uh, global warming, uh, the issues, uh, China and uh, Russia are taking initiative in this uh, the issue. This is good things, uh, tackling the global issues, but too much political things uh, this area. So um, I need to uh, pull uh, the United States back. Then uh, the Japan, I need to coordinate the laws by the major stakeholders and work on the issues together. Uh, this is my idea. And as for uh, the DPRK, um, Japan is not the non-permanent member today. Uh, therefore, it's quite difficult to more commit uh, to show the more commitment to uh, the making the resolution against the DPRK. So the uh, Prime Minister Abe, Abe has a stronger will to have a dialogue talk uh, with Kim Jong. But um, it takes more time to have it because the, uh, Japan, um, Japan is uh, the not uh, not, uh, it should not direct contact. It's um, 
uh, need to wait for uh, the communication or uh, the, the, between the Kim Jong-un and Trump for uh, that time being. And uh, wait and see for, for the moment. And then uh, Japan has uh, another issues uh, between uh, Korea, uh, DPRK and Japan, uh, that is abduction issues. They should be more carefully, uh, the Japanese government have to move on. Therefore, uh, wait and see for the moment. Thank you very much for your comments. Uh, for the matter of populism, um, it's difficult to, uh, for me to answer, but um, for uh, Japan, maybe uh, the, um, it can uh, try to convey uh, the right message to at the civil, civic level, civil society level, uh, because a lot of populism rise, a rise of populism, is, uh, um, a lot of wrong message, or um, the, it's just mistakes uh, can be used, misinformation can be used, utilized for the political benefit. So it's very important for uh, Japanese, not only in the government level, but in the various <laughs> level, uh, to try to convey uh, what's right and to try to discuss the matters um, based on the facts. And so that kind of communication uh, could help to uh, sort of uh, mitigate some the populism movement uh, like in the other countries um, that also I think like a financial crisis played some role in the rise of populism not in the US and also in the European case. Japan had the financial crisis in the 1990s uh, but um, the, and some scholars say that say that Japan managed in a way, uh, managed well, um, although it had all the economic misery, uh, economic difficulties, uh, because Japan did, have, did not have the huge rise of populism even after the uh, huge losses of wealth and um, the um, change in uh, economic power. Um, but um, yeah, but if regional uh, situation changed, like uh, with the possible some like escalation of the, um, I don't know if like all the, um, the refugee issues came into the Japan, so like Europe, as Europe faced, I'm not sure whether Japanese government or Japan uh, has the tools to handle with all the shocks. So uh, I think Japan has to be prepared for possible shocks that all the things are more like now growing concerns at this point, but if some escalation happens, Japan, has to be um, like has to be prepared for that. So that's my answer. Thank you, Stephanie. Get the benediction. Sure. Just turn off the microphone. Yeah. Just on the the question on um, what might change the narrative in the U.S. the anti-globalization narrative. I wonder sometimes how overstated that may be in the sense that. Polling shows Americans actually are still supportive of free trade. We have. Um, I don't know the most current status, but USMCA actually getting through a Democratic House. And there, I think, the claim would be not anti-trade so much as wanting fair trade. So with certain concessions, you can kind of change the narrative around trade as fair trade and get support. Um, and so similarly, I think um, globalization itself um, it's not that the U.S. is anti-globalization, but I think that there is a tendency for politicians in the U.S. and elsewhere to look outside for something to vilify, and I think that 
has been a problem. So it's probably the responsibility of leaders <laughs> to avoid vilifying globalization. And if you want to kind of use the USMCA as an example of leveling the playing field or giving some concessions, in this case on environment and labor, um, you know, I'd like to take that model and apply it to other global issues like the environment. And I don't think most Americans would say that they are um, anti-environmental standards, or at least we're kind of moving in the direction of wanting whatever standards are here or also that are kind of the global standards. And so in a way, I think there's maybe a call for even more globalization, but wanting others to meet whatever standards the U.S. is actually willing to sign up to. Okay, thanks. We did promise we'd let you go a little bit early, so I'm going to forgo other questions um, in the interest of keeping that promise. Uh, another terrific discussion. Uh, I think we only, you know, skimmed the surface of some of the issues, as I say, that are in these papers. And when are they coming out, Mike, or when are they expected, or do you not want to commit? Uh, at least in the next few months, uh, there will be a collection of, um, of these papers, um, and, uh, and I think you'll enjoy them and, and learn something from them. Uh, but for now, if you could uh, join me in, in thanking our panelists for participating today. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.